This week's show is brought to you by Loot Crate, the official sponsor of Enchanted Tiki Talk. Loot Crate is the world's greatest subscription box for geeks, gamers, pop culture, and Disney fans like you. Start your subscription now at www.lootcrate.com slash tiki talk. Vahini Mekioni Mana, ladies and gentlemen, no flashbulbs, please. Our performers are temperamental and easily upset. Thank you for your cooperation. Oh, look at all the people. My goodness, you're all staring at us. We better start the show rolling. Wait, wait, we forgot to wake up the Glee Club. Hey, howdy, hey, and thank you for joining us here on Enchanted Tiki Talk. We are your hosts. I'm Sean. I'm Alan. I'm Keith. So grab yourself a Dole Whip, pull up a chair, and enjoy the show. This is episode 75 for the week of March 30th, 2015. On this week's show, we are excited to have a former Disney cast member and a Disney historian who has written several books on the history of Disney. We welcome the author of The Vault of Walt, Jim Corcuson, to the Tiki Hut. Welcome, Jim. Hey, uh, aloha. Uh, <laughs> always love talking about tikis, and uh, thanks uh, so much for inviting me on. I, I'm looking forward to, to sharing what uh, few nuggets of uh, wisdom and knowledge I have with the listeners, and I hope they'll enjoy it. Yeah, I hope so. We're really excited about this. Um, but first, if anybody who's not really familiar with you, Jim, uh, why don't you give a little bit of background about you know your your history uh, with Disney and your writing? Okay. Uh, basically, I'm uh, my name is Jim Corcus. I'm a Disney historian. I've written uh, uh, several books about uh, Disney history. There's seven of them out now, with more coming. They're available at Amazon.com, and they're published by uh, Theme Park Press. Uh, www.themeparkpress.com so they also have a bunch of other uh, Disney books I grew up in Glendale, California which is uh, adjacent to uh, Burbank, California where the Disney Studios are and as a teenager I was fascinated by animation so I grabbed hold of the uh, nearby phone book and uh, phoned people in the Glendale, Burbank area where when I saw their names on the uh, weekly Disney TV show to Asked them about animation. And so as a teenager, that's how I got started uh, meeting a lot of animators, a lot of Disney Imagineers, and writing down their stories. And uh, then in uh, 1995, fall of 1995, I moved out to uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, to take care of my uh, uh, mom and dad who were uh, ill. And I got a job at uh, uh, Walt Disney World uh, doing uh, magic and balloon animals at Pleasure Island for drunk college students. <laughs> and uh, then got moved over to the Magic Kingdom, where I assisted in the portrayal of uh, Merlin the Magician doing the Sword and the Stone ceremony, oh dear. And uh, then after that, shortly got moved over to the Disney Institute, because I have a background in animation. So I was a salaried animation instructor, and then uh, moved over to uh, uh Disney Adult Discoveries, which were the behind-the-scenes tours like Backstage Magic and Innovation in Action and all that for guests and convention groups. Then moved to uh, Epcot, where I was a coordinator with college and international programs, uh, because, again, I have a a teaching background. I'm still a certificated uh, teacher, and so uh, I taught over 250 different classes and then was moved over to the Disney Learning Center at Epcot, which is sort of like a computer lab and and library, and I continued to do uh, uh, special presentations and special projects for the Disney Company. And uh, then in 2009, uh, on on one week, uh, Disney decided to uh, lay off over 3,000 cast members just at Walt Disney World, and I was one of them. And... uh, uh, I decided, okay, well, what are my skills other than saying, uh, would you like fries with that? And it turned out that my skills were that uh, I had all of this background in Disney history, and I had interviewed so many people out in California and so many people out at, in Florida at, who unfortunately have since uh, passed away. And I felt a great obligation to share their stories share their information because uh, Disney is a company more or less of oral history. And so, for instance, even in the days of animation, if somebody wanted to ask a question about Steamboat Willie, they didn't have this documented. They'd say, oh, go talk to Ub Iwerks in Special Processes. He worked on that. He'll tell you about that. 
And the same thing with the uh, uh, theme parks. You know, oh, go talk to uh, Ken Anderson. He worked on the Mr. Toad ride. It never occurred to any of them that, you know, these people might leave the company or might leave this plane of existence altogether. So I figured we need to get this information out of out because we're losing more and more of it um, every day. And so what I'm hoping on the program today is uh, maybe I'll be able to share a few tidbits about uh, Walt Disney uh, World's Adventureland, which will enhance the experience for those of you who are listening. Yeah, we hope so. You're extremely knowledgeable, and your books are, are a great his, his, a resource into the history of um, Disneyland, Disney World, and Walt Disney. So if you, as a listener of the show, you definitely should check out some of um of Jim's books. They are incredibly, you know, well-written, great stories, and, and he's a great storyteller. So this should be a great episode for you guys to listen to, and picking up his books will definitely be a great asset to your uh your Disney knowledge. Well, growing well Disney thank you knowledge. very much. That, that That's very kind of you. That's how I make my living these days. So I appreciate it. Good. And and in fact, those who are interested in Adventureland, go check out uh, Vault of Walt Volume 2. There's an entire uh, uh, chapter about uh, how the original uh, Adventureland was created for uh, Disneyland back in 1955. Perfect. So uh, let's get into it. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things about Walt Disney World when it first opened was the the lack of Pirates of the Caribbean. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it always interested me in the story that the reason that they didn't want to put Pirates of the Caribbean in there was because they figured people had enough in Florida had enough of pirates and there was no reason to to have them there. So, how long was it until Disney actually realized that they needed to put the Pirates of the Caribbean in after opening uh, in 1971? Oh, I- I- immediately. The the first two questions that uh, uh, guests always asked every single day was, uh, number one, where's Mickey Mouse? Because there was no uh, designated area to meet Mickey Mouse. He would wander the park just as he did at Disneyland. And so that was later solved by the creation of uh, Mickey's uh, birthday land. Then the other question was, where's Pirates of the Caribbean? Because... Uh, remember, the uh, Pirates had opened in uh, 67 in Disneyland, and by 71, people had heard all of these things. They had seen a special episode on the Disney Weekly TV show, and so it's like, we want the Pirates. The, the plan was uh, for Magic Kingdom not to be uh, a mirror image of uh, Disneyland, or maybe a funhouse mirror, because the Imagineers had so much land to work with, that they wanted to make changes. So, for instance, the Peter Pan ride was uh, significantly longer. Mr. Toad had had two separate tracks that intersected. The uh, uh, 20,000 Leagues ride had had submarines that looked not like uh, the U.S. Uh, submarine fleet, but looked the uh, wonderful uh, designs from the uh, uh, movie. So they were going to do um, Thunder Mesa, which would have had a... Uh, a log uh, flume ride. They would have had a uh, actually a cowboy ride. It was called. Uh, uh, people who worked at Disney joked and called it Cowboys of the Caribbean, because basically you're in this boat and you go through an old western town and there's a stagecoach robbery and the whole bit. And and so the beats and the design very similar to Pirates of the Caribbean. People Disney felt and I think rightly so. Well, look, you've got New Orleans out there. You've got Blackbeard up the, you know, the coast of the Carolinas here, all of this, you know, people have pirate museums, all of that, you know, on the East Coast, they're sick of that. No, what the guests wanted was, we want pirates. So in uh, 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 1973, Adventureland was extended uh, to have that uh, Caribbean plaza and to have uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. But again, you want to do something different than what's at Disneyland. You don't want people to say, well, I already rode that in Disneyland. I don't need to ride this. You want to give them a different experience. And Mark Davis was especially anxious to do that because he had worked on the Disneyland version. And one of the things that he absolutely hated was the end of the ride where you go up 
the waterfall. I, I think most of us as Disney fans now love the idea of going up the waterfall because it brings closure. You're going down the waterfall and it's like you're going through a dream. And then at the end, you're going back up the waterfall into reality. But uh, that's not the way Mark Davis saw it. And so basically he came up with a Pirates of the Caribbean that just sort of ends. It just oh, interesting. Ends. I didn't know that. Yes, and, and uh, you know, Mark had a, a great hand in, in all of these. In fact, that's why the uh, uh, Jungle Ride is so different, because the Jungle Cruise Ride at uh, Disneyland uh, had already been set. That had been set by um, uh, another Imagineer, another terrific Imagineer, Harper Goff. Harper Goff had based it on um, the Humphrey Bogart movie, African Queen, from 1951. And uh, so the designs of the boats, you know, had those uh, uh, candy-striped, you know, canopies and, and the whole thing. But one of the things that Harper loved about the film, and, and he showed it to, to Walt and they talked about this, was in the movie, to sort of save money, uh, you didn't really see the animals. You know, you, you, you saw things... Uh, uh, bushes rustle, or you saw bubbles in the water and, and all of that. And so Harper thought that that would be the way, you know, to uh, present it on the ride, that you just sort of catch the glimpse, you know, in between the foliage, in between uh, the landscaping. Because, uh, uh, again, in those days, you didn't have audio animatronics. You had what were called uh, electromechanicals. Now, electromechanical is basically that. It's a mechanical device run by electricity that will repeat an action. So, for instance, on the rivers of America, you had the Indian chief on his horse, and he would raise his hand, and then the hand would come down, and he'd raise the hand. And so uh, the same type of thing on the Jungle Cruise, where you had cams and chains and, and all of this to control a hippo going forward and back, up, and down, open the mouth, close the mouth. And, but again, since it's hidden, you know, by the water, uh, you know, you see those ears wiggle and, you know, it, it, you get caught up in the excitement of all of this. And um, in the uh, uh, 60s, early 60s, uh, Walt sent Mark Davis down to take a look at Disneyland and see what he could do to plus the whole situation. And Mark said, everything is just so darn serious. He said, including, you know, the Jungle Cruise ride. You know, the, the skippers still had, you know, uh, some jokes, you know, like Trader Sam, whose uh, business was shrinking. So he'll trade, uh, you know, two of his heads for one of yours. That was actually in, you know, the, the 50s uh, uh, script there. But uh, so what happened is Mark Davis added in humor into the Jungle Cruise ride, the uh, bathing pool of the elephants, the uh, uh, overturned jeep, you know, with the, the uh, gorillas. And, and, of course, the most important thing is the trapped safari with uh, uh, the rhinoceros at the bottom, you know, to get the point. That was actually designed to be put up uh, on the perimeter where the railroad was because the railroad, the train, would go through Adventureland, and all it saw was all this wonderful landscaping. And so, uh, you know, Davis came up with the idea of, let's put that over in Adventureland. We'll put a uh, crashed flying saucer with aliens over by Tomorrowland, all of that. And Walt took a look at the, the gag, and he says, this is too good for the train. So it became <laughs> it became part of, of the ride. And so... When Mark Davis was given complete control of Walt Disney World's Jungle Cruise, he just went crazy in terms of, you know, adding all of these uh, different things in. And, of course, the most important addition was to finally give that attraction a, a sense of closure. You know, uh, at, at Disneyland, you know, you escape the headhunters, and now you go back to the most dangerous thing of all, civilization. But... Um, uh, Davis wanted to really give it a powerful ending, so you've got the Cambodian temple. And you don't just go by the Cambodian temple, you go through the Cambodian temple. And you don't just go through the Cambodian temple, but you twist and turn through it, so you don't see where the ending is. You don't know how long it's going to be. And so you see the tiger, and you see... 
the cobras and and they're they're not just cobras they're huge cobras and uh you see the monkeys playing around and and so you finally leave the attraction with this um sense of of satisfaction and of course one of the curious things about um uh adventureland is that um I think it's like 60, yeah, 67 at Disneyland, they named one of the uh, boats Kissimmee Kate in, in honor of Florida. Oh, wow. But Kissimmee Kate does not exist out here in the Orlando attraction. So, um, and since this is Tiki Talk, let's talk about Tiki's. At, at the end of that um, Jungle Cruise and you get out, there used to be Tiki's. And those tiki's were designed by Mark Davis. You know, we usually think of, oh, well, tiki's, the first name that usually comes to mind is Roly Crump. But no, those were tiki's were designed by Mark Davis. And they were in a circle, so it was a drum circle. They were communicating back and forth, and they were made out of wood. Well, what happens with wood, of course, is wood deteriorates, wood rocks and all that. And so at Walt Disney World, when they did the redesign, in uh, 1991 and then a, a further update in 1994, they moved those tiki's and of course they redid them, but they redid them in fiberglass and then they rigged them up so they would spit. So it's the same design of the, of the tiki's, it's the design by Mark Davis, a, a lot of people don't realize that, and they were in a drum circle down by the Jungle Cruise, but now they're, they're up there on that uh, walkway and they're spitting at you, and uh, probably Disney is the only place in the world where you look forward to things spitting at you, whether it's tiki's <laughs> or whether it's a camel or whether it's the dog sneezing in Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. For some reason, Disney audiences love that. Try and have that happen in New York or whatever. Right, you know? Yeah, yeah we're going to have this thing spit at you. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that happens in New York, though, but that's not the same thing. No, it, 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 it's, not, it's not the same magical experience. Not at all. So when they brought, when they finally did decide to put Pirates in, why did they, was it because they were trying to do it in a hurry? Is that why they chose to do an abbreviated version? Or was it because of what you were talking about with wanting to have a... For, first off, they had to get it in quickly. Uh, second off... Um, uh, Mark Davis was completely in control, so he wanted to make changes that he felt he that should have happened in the version in Disneyland. But you know, now with Walt no longer there to say no to anything or give me a different idea, uh, basically um, the company just trusted and said, "Well, these people have done this before; they must know what they're doing. <laughs> We're just going to let them do what they're doing." And, uh, and of course, the uh, entrance at uh, Walt Disney World is much more uh, elaborate. You know, the exterior, um, very reminiscent of uh, the fort in uh, uh, San Marcos in, uh, in Puerto Rico there. And, of course, the uh, uh, pirate, you know, in that jail cell uh, playing uh, chess. Now, the interesting thing about that is um, if you take a look at that game, it really is... A, um, there is no move that you can make that won't get you into some stalemate position. There's no way anybody can, can win. That's why the pirates are still there as skeletons playing this, because they're trying to figure out, how can I win this game? They can't. Huh. Now, huh. the problem that happened, though, is Davis was tremendously clever in creating that, but Davis didn't live forever. Mark, unfortunately, passed away. And uh, during a rehab, somebody knocked over the the chessboard. And then, again, nobody had documented what the position of the chess pieces are. So Imagineering oh, wow. is going crazy, you know? And they're, they're talking to chess experts and, and all of this, how, looking at pictures to try and see, you know, can't do that until somebody, somebody, Turn the board over, and Mark had sketched the position of <laughs> where the thing should be, wow. where the pieces should be. So, That's you know, they, they now have it documented. They now have this, you know. But, but again, uh, Disney is a company that is so anxious, you know, to um, – it, it's constantly doing things, you know. Things are constantly being changed. You know, the hat is down now at, 
Disney MGM Studios, and I'm, I'm warning listeners right now, if you like Men and Bill, you better go check out Men and Bill. If you love Gertie the Dinosaur, I love Gertie the Dinosaur. Those are on the chopping block next. Uh-oh. All, of that area, all of that area is going to go away, and it's going to become uh, Mose Eisley from, uh, oh, you know, where uh, uh, Luke and, yeah, Obi-Wan visited, and there was the canteen and all that, because Mose right. Eisley is a town, uh, a city, that is filled with merchandise shops and restaurants. Okay, I guess that makes sense. That's why they would do that. Okay, so exactly. anyway, <laughs> um, getting back to Adventureland, you have to realize there's a reason why it's called Adventureland rather than Africa Land or Asia land or whatever because Adventureland is not it, when you say it's Adventureland you're not committed now to it being a completely accurate experience as as you would as you if you had an African pavilion at World Showcase or a or a Chinese pavilion you know there's a level of accuracy and there's an input that you need to put in with Adventureland you're looking at it from a theatrical standpoint. So um, it, it, it's inspired by the, um, you know, the uh, uh, American uh, jungle movies, uh, you know, from the uh, 30s and 40s. So Tarzan and Jungle Jim and, you know, all, all of these it, it adventure films. And so you've got this taste of something exotic uh, where you don't have to really be authentic. Uh, it, just like Main Street USA is not authentic at all. On a real Main Street, you would have gaps between each of the businesses. There'd be alleyways where they'd have their trash cans and horses could get through and all of that, you know. Uh, and, and in fact, the paint on the building at a, a turn of the century Main Street, uh, it would be either a flat white paint or sort of a flat green paint because it would be inexpensive. It would also survive against weather, whatever. So Main Street is a theatrical experience. Adventureland is a theatrical experience uh, as well. It's to it capture things for um, what was called in 1955 the armchair adventurer. And that's the person who is not going to go to the jungle in, in South America or to Africa or whatever, but is going to sit in their armchair at home and maybe watch, you know, um, travel logs on TV or, or, or flip through uh, copies of National Geographic or whatever. And so that's what Adventureland was meant to be, to capture this sort of indistinguishable exotic area. And so uh, when you, especially even when you take a look at, at Jungle Cruise, because Adventureland is the one land at the Disney theme parks where it really depends upon the landscaping and the foliage. And so basically Bill Evans told me this. Bill Evans was the landscaper for uh, uh, Disneyland and also for Walt Disney World. He said, you know, I've been to j jungles, Jim, and they are just monotonous. You know, because sometimes you don't see anything for a long period of time, and then you see the same, you know, type of stuff. He says, I just jammed all sorts of different things together, even things that weren't uh, from a tropical area. Bamboo is not from a tropical area, and but when you put it there, it looks like it belongs there. It looks like, right. well, these are from the jungles of the world. And, in fact, the Jungle Cruise was originally called um, uh, the Tropical Rivers of the World. That was the original name of the attraction. In fact, some of the 1955 posters actually had that on that before it became Jungle Cruise. Now, out here, as I said, in Walt Disney World, things are uh, a lot different. You know, and when you turn the corner from Main Street and you head up towards Adventureland, the design of the Crystal Palace there is specifically Victorian, so it themes into Main Street, but it also themes into the colonial buildings that would be in South Africa. And you'll notice that as you turn the corner and you're going past Main Street and it's all, you know, nicely trimmed and all this, as you start to go up on that bridge, look over to the left and you see that the foliage, the landscaping starts to change. So you're already transitioning without being consciously aware of it. And take a look at the metal um, light posts. The ones that are closest to Adventureland, take a look at the bottom. They have little tigers on them. Oh, really? Really. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and, and it's a series of um, three or four. I think it's four, you know. And so it's a tiger on his back. So you see the little tiger head and the and the paws, and his back is up against the uh, lamppost, and then it curves down. But it but it looks like the filigree that you would see on the uh, uh, lampposts um, on Main Street, you know, that curve up. Oh, okay. And you start to go, and, and then you see the sign, and you see the skulls up there. And I had somebody try to tell me, well, see those skulls there, Jim? That's the foreshadowing of the pirates. And I said, no, the skulls are there because there's headhunters. That's why there's skulls up there. And and you have the, the little shields and all that, and you're going over the, the wooden bridge. And the reason you're going over the wooden bridge, originally it was going to be covered. Uh, Sam McKim did a concept drawing where it was covered, and Dorothea Redmond did one where, where, where it was covered too, because it, they, they wanted it covered so it was blocked out, so you felt you were going through a portal, you were going through a tunnel into a, another land. It, it's not there. But you get that same uh, unconscious effect because you feel the wood underneath your feet now, and that's different than Main Street. It's different than, than everything else. And, and you see the shields, you know, uh, along the side of the, the bridge, and suddenly, you know, you're into adventure land, and, and you can't see into it. You know, uh, the other lands have those uh, little weenies. They have, you know, the uh, icons, whether it's the the carousel that pulls you through the castle or, or um, you know, the Astral Orbiter or at, at Disneyland it was the TWA Moon Rocket or at Frontierland it was the, the sound of the Mark Twain and the sight of the Mark Twain. It pulls you in. There's nothing pulling you into Adventureland, so it's a mystery. Suddenly, you know, things are off, and you feel that as you go through. And, and again, you're, you're getting that mixture of uh, Africa and, and Asia and uh, the Caribbean, Polynesia, the South, Seas, South Sea Islands there. And now in, uh, since uh, 2001, you've got the uh, flying carpets there. So you've got the uh, uh, Mideast, which was never in any other Disney adventure land until then. <laughs> You, you had you had sort of suggestions in some of the facade architecture. And, of course, the storyline the Imagineers came up with is as they were digging the well uh, in Adventureland, and, and there's the fountain there right there in Adventureland. As they were digging the well for the fountain, they discovered the lamp. And when they rubbed the lamp, that's where the carpets came from. So oh, now really? You, yes. Interesting. You know, I and, and again, that. See, all... All of these are forgotten stories. All of these are forgotten stories that, that uh, people have. And, and in fact, a lot of people you know, always call it the Tiki Room. They don't realize that in 1971, when it opened, it was called the Tropical Serenade. Right. You know, it was not the Tiki Room. And uh, thank heavens they brought it sort of back to the original version. I'm, I was not a big fan of uh, under new management. You know, uh, first off, because I think... Um, uh, they went a little overboard saying, you know, we're sort of embarrassed being Disney. See, we're making, you know, it, what, the last thing that Iago uh, uh, says in that uh, attraction, if you stuck around instead of just rushing for the doors, the last thing he says is, boy, I'm really tired. I'm going to go over to the Hall of Presidents and get a nap. That thing always puts me to sleep. Right. So, you know, and, and again, I don't think guests responded to that, you know. Yes, wanted to, so the, you know, I, the, I want to sing the, like the birdies sing. I want to see the tiki's, you know? So the attic fire was basically a blessing in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you do get the, those uh, blessings. And, and sometimes, as I tell people, uh, just because something is new doesn't mean it's better, you know? You know, people really want to be touched and and i saw this as a kid i want to bring my kid to see this you know i do realize that you know life is is a lot different now for for people and uh i have a a, a nephew who just turned uh, 11 years old and he spends most of his time on his little you know game console and and all of this and i try to get him interested in things that i was interested in as a kid and he is not interested in the least so 
it, it's a different world, and uh, it, it's just going to get more and more that more and more that way. But uh, Adventureland, fascinating, uh, a fascinating uh, uh, place. But yes, the, the whole concept of Pirates of the Caribbean was this is what people wanted, and Disney is a business. You got to give them what what they want. And of course, that whole area there had been closed off. Adventureland, when it opened in '71, ended there at the Tropical Serenade. Now in '73, with uh, Pirates, you're opening up that area, but it's still taking another um, two years uh, to introduce some of the other shops and restaurants there. And you notice, since it is Pirates, you know it has that Spanish influence, which of course leads very easily into the transition into Frontierland where you've got the Spanish influence. So as you're leaving the Carib Caribbean Plaza there and heading towards Frontierland, you're see still seeing those elements that you associate with pirates, and now they're being associated with, you know, the Southwest. So was the Western River, River expansion supposed to be part of Adventureland? Uh, no, Western River uh, was going to be... Um, Basically, you know where Splash Mountain is. It would have gone Splash Mountain all the way back to Thunder Mountain, and then a little of it would have extended over, uh, because again, it was a massive complex. They, they, they were going to have pack mule riding on, on, on the top of the mountain, and there would be all sor sorts of things going on there. Um, runaway Train, you know, uh, which, which again ended up being Big Thunder Mountain because Imagineers threw nothing away. But yes, it, it would have extended, oh gosh, um, about where, uh, uh, you know, they used to have that uh, McDonald's French fry wagon out there opposite right. uh, uh, Pecos Bill's Cafe. That would have been about the start of Big Thunder going in through there. Yeah. So Jim, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the changing, uh, the changing guest uh, in terms of how they you know, visit the park and experience the park. And it makes me think of one of my favorite movies when I was a kid uh, was Swiss Family Robinson. So I love Swiss mm. Family Treehouse because I, I love the idea of living in that tree. But even now as an adult, I don't, I don't go visit that attraction and I'm not, I'm not alone. It's, it's a, it seems to be a, a slowly dying attraction. Do you think that, well, one, can you talk a little bit about that attraction? But then do you think that the, the idea of a walkthrough style attraction like that is kind of a dying breed now? Again, as you said, it's based on a, a 1960 uh, uh, Disney uh, film, which of course was based on a novel from the 1800s. And so the odds of most people being familiar with that nowadays is, is pretty minimal. Uh, also the fact, I, I think we've got a, um, Americans now, I think, have become larger. I certainly have. And so hiking up those steps is, is now much rougher than it was, you know, when that attraction uh, first opened. So I don't think people have that emotional connection with that attraction anymore. The, the idea of being in a, in a treehouse, I think, is still valid. I, you, you even see on uh, uh, cable TV, they have a whole uh, TV series devoted to treehouses, these expensive treehouses you can build. Now, at Disneyland, they tried to solve that problem by making it Tarzan's treehouse. But the problem was, is people didn't have an emotional connection to Tarzan. They didn't know who Tarzan was. And in terms of animated films, that's if you have uh, those DVDs on your shelf, Tarzan is usually not one of the first ten that you reach for that you're going to put in uh, you know, your Blu-ray player to play over and over again. So you have this massive man-made construction which is about uh, uh, 60 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter but people have no clue why is this here what is this about you know and for its time period in in 71 and all it was highly popular but now nope now now you're gonna have to try and sell it to, to a new generation, uh, uh, you know, or find something to take the place of it. You know, and, and I think the, the rehabilitation they uh, uh, did in there in the 90s where they took, you know, the smooth concrete benches and all that and rethemed them. So these are lava rocks now and you have bits and pieces of things and even a cannon, you know, in that area. 
And I think one of the other things that is killing it is when the Adventureland veranda closed, you know? So there's no reason to stay in that area whatsoever now, you know? But in the old days, you know, you had a, a food and beverage location, you know, uh, that would track, you know, you had the, the bathrooms there, things, things like that. So there was a, a, a center of activity that might draw people to that attraction. Now, I think people take a look at it and go, well, what is this? You know, what's what's the story here? And I, I think some of that is Disney's fault for not actively telling the story to people. This is what this is. You know, you don't you don't see, uh, um, you know, an article in D23 magazine or, uh, you know, on the Disney, uh, the official Disney blog or whatever of, you know, this is the Swiss Family Treehouse. This is why it's here. This is what's cool about this. This is these are the things to see. You know, they don't even talk about here's where the hidden Mickeys are. If you told people here's where hidden Mickeys are, people would be there in a shot. People right. love hidden Mickeys. You know? Or dole whips. They could put dole whips up top. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, and, and I've got to admit that when I was younger, I, I just loved that because you're climbing up high and you're looking down into things and uh, all of this and, and how clever it is, how they get water to come up and the whole bit. But um, nowadays, uh, you know, uh, as I've gotten uh, older and lazier and all of that, it's like there's no bang for my buck to climb up there. I'm going to climb up there and then what am I going to do? I'm going to walk right back down. You know? And I love Disney. And I love Swiss Family Robinson. And I loved Haley Mills. And, you know, and I loved all of those uh, uh, characters. And, you know, I still don't go up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went up there on a recent trip just because my wife had never seen it. So I said, well, we got to mm -hmm. do it once. And she was like, yeah, we're never doing that again. <laughs> like, okay, well, <laughs> that's fair, but and, at least and, you tried And I it, think some know? of that reaction is you don't understand. Well, why is this here? Or this relates to the movie. And this is, you know, and, you know, imagine, you know, imagine if there was a zombie apocalypse and you had to build something in the trees because zombies can't climb trees. I have never seen a zombie movie where zombies climb trees. And so, you know, that's where you should you should build. And this is what it could look like, you know. No, it doesn't right, make any idea. difference to anybody. <laughs> one thing that's uh, fascinating, one of the most fascinating characters in Adventureland is the orange bird at the Sunshine mm -hmm. Tree Terrace. What is uh, some of the backstory to the orange bird for those people who don't know him? Okay. Uh, the orange bird uh, was a character created for the uh, Florida citrus growers. Uh, because one of the things that uh, Florida sells is orange juice. There's orange trees and all of that, and you want to make that impact into the market, and you want to make a, uh, uh, you know, uh, significantly differentiate yourself from from California orange juice, you know, or uh, something like that. And so the Florida citrus growers uh, paid Disney to design this character, which is basically a bird with the head of an orange, more or less. And his uh, wings are sort of like green leaves, like you would have on a uh, uh, an orange tree. And uh, he didn't say anything. He sang, but he didn't say anything. But he thought thoughts in uh, these uh, sort of orange uh, thought balloons, like you would see in a comic uh, Book, but instead of words, he thought in terms of, of pictures. And so um, they had a spokeswoman, Anita Bryan, and uh, she would sing and welcome you to Florida and all this. And again, since this was not a Disney character, but a Florida citrus growers character, uh, Orange Bird merchandise, which sold at all the little uh, uh, shops along, uh, you know, uh, I drive and uh, I-95 down there and things like that. So there were uh, salt and pepper shakers and, and plates and uh, bobbleheads and mugs and all that. And uh, uh, one of the reasons Disney did this is because the, the, uh, the citrus growers then sponsored uh, the Tropical Serenade, the tiki birds there, and um, uh, the little sunshine terrace there where you could get Dole Whip and uh, all sorts of uh, 
orange treats and and all of that. Uh, how and they even had a walk around in Adventureland, a walk around Orange Bird character, so you could get your picture taken with him. Uh, but what happened is, you know, um, oftentimes characters only have a a certain lifespan. But what also drove uh, a nail into the coffin was uh, Anita Bryant became involved with. Uh, uh, some controversy, and so people were boycotting uh, Florida orange juice as a result. And because the little orange bird had been tied so closely to her, uh, he was disappeared as well. Uh, the Sherman Brothers wrote uh, a theme song for the uh, uh, orange bird as well. Uh, fortunately, enough years have passed, or decades have passed, and the little orange bird is uh, starting to be reintroduced because he was first rediscovered in Japan because Japan love all sorts of, of cute things. So, you know, that's why they fell in love with uh, uh, Duffy and uh, Duffy the bear and all of those. They fell in love with the orange bird. And so there was a ton of orange bird merchandise and all that. So the Disney company gradually started to reintroduce introduce it uh, here in Florida and one of the uh, things that they found which was just amazing it was hidden in a drawer in Imagineering was um, one of the little orange birds that used to sit on the perch at the Sunshine Terrace there they found one of the originals that had been removed when the orange bird you know was was removed from there and uh, they rehabbed it and they've they've reinstalled it over there so that for those of us who are old timers, it, it, that's kind of nice. And for a younger generation that uh, don't even know, they take a look and they go, oh, that's so cute. I love that. I want that. And uh, Orange Bird is exclusive to Adventureland uh, out here in Florida. It's not out there in Disneyland. Yeah, he's a great little character. And some of the merchandise that they have for him is, is pretty spectacular. I love the artwork that they've done. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the people involved, uh, uh, you know, really did their homework on this one. So, Jim, uh, we're going to start wrapping things up. But every single guest that we have come on the show, um, we ask them the same five questions. It's a Tiki lightning round. Uh-oh. Um, the first... <laughs> it's easy. I, uh, I hope it's true, false, <laughs> or multiple choice. Okay, go ahead. Uh, your first question, your favorite snack in the parks? Uh, Dole Whip. Favorite attraction? Uh, favorite attraction is actually Pirates of the Caribbean. In uh, Disney World or Disney, Disneyland? Uh, at, at both, both. I, okay. I, I I love them both because uh, it, there there really is that uh, sense of adventure and 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 storytelling. And again, it's it's an attraction that's accessible uh, to all ages. I, I I said that I have a young nephew. I can take him on that attraction, you know, uh, and and he enjoys it as much as I do, but on on different level. Favorite character. Mickey Mouse, the original black and white Mickey Mouse, because, oh, gosh, oh, boy, uh, he really was a reflection of <laughs> Walt Disney. So, so the, oh, gosh, thanks. <laughs> You'd be goofy if you don't listen to Tiki Talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm also a professional actor. One of the classes I used to teach at Disney Institute was called Voices of Disney, where I would uh, teach people to do that, and I've done some voiceover work uh uh, for Disney. Now, some of it I can't legally you sign off so that you can't say what you did. But uh, something that I did do is I was the off-camera narrator for a syndicated TV series called Secrets of the Animal Kingdom. Disney produced it uh, for just one year. It was uh, syndicated. Basically, the premise was uh, you have these two kids, a boy and a girl, and they go to Animal Kingdom, and they have a mystery to solve, and they have to go to three different locations to solve that uh, uh, mystery. There were about uh, 13 episodes. I was the narrator, but I was also the voice of a dozen different animals, because sometimes they'd come upon an animal, and the animal would talk and say terrible, terrible uh, jokes, you know. Uh, right. Cheetah is the fastest land animal, but he was caught by man, so that proves that cheetahs never prosper. <laughs> so, anyway, we've got, I think we've got two more questions to go here. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's perfect. <laughs> your your favorite uh, Disney movie? Oh, gosh. Oftentimes that uh, changes just depending upon what mood I'm in, but usually my fallback answer is uh, Dumbo. 
which I think is a, a perfect uh, a film. And of course, I cannot take a, a date to that film because when that scene comes up where the mother is locked in that, you know, uh, that little trailer and only her trunk can come out to dump. And when Dumbo, you know, walks away, take a look and you'll notice that as he walks away and turns back towards the mother, there's nothing in the background except the, the, the night sky, so he's isolated. And if you freeze frame and take a look, his eyes are in the shape of teardrops. You know? Oh, really? And, yes. My God. And, and so I will tell you that I am severely frightened that Tim Burton is going to be doing a live-action version of Dumbo. You know, first off, I don't like any, I don't like the idea of a live action d- version of Dumbo to begin with. But to have Tim Burton do it, I don't think Tim Burton has the right feel for that for that level of 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 warmth and and sort of panoramic uh, storytelling. But yes, usually yeah, my fallback is, is is Dumbo. Uh, but sometimes I'll go to Lady and the Tramp or 101 Dalmatians. Um, you know. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'll, yeah. I, I saw Cinderella this uh, uh, last weekend with my nephew, and he hated it <laughs> because again, he's oh, really? a boy. He, he did, I took a look at it and I thought, you know, this is really well done, and this is really respectful to the original Cinderella story as well as to um, uh, the Disney version. And I wonder how many people uh, stayed to the end. And heard uh, Helena Barnum Carter sing "Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo," and then as the screen goes black, she goes, "Where did everybody go?" <laughs> so, those those of you who haven't seen the film, stick around to the end there. Okay, you got one more question for me. Yep, your favorite Disney park memory. Oh gosh, I've I've, I've had. Um, uh, so mem- uh, so many, and, and usually they're associated. Like uh, my mom and dad have have uh, passed away uh, about seven years ago, but uh, I, I think all of my favorite uh, park memories dealt with it. Oh, I, I I know the I know the favorite. It was um, when I was a kid. We went to Disneyland. I was fascinated by animation. They had a shop um, called the Art of Animation in Tomorrowland and they had an animation kit it was this big huge cardboard box it had uh, two of those you know how to draw Mickey how to draw Donald type things they had this little um, pressed wood uh, animation uh, desk that you could put up and and you had a little uh, light bulb that could go underneath it and and all that and the little pegs and uh, all of that, and they had uh, two flipbooks, and uh, uh, we were not a well-off family, and so, um, uh, but I really wanted that because I really wanted to be an animator. I really wanted to be an artist. I eventually learned that I was, I became a good enough artist to know how really bad I was, so I stopped that. But anyway, I really wanted that. I golly, one um, Christmas, that December, we went and. Um, they let me get it. But again, I couldn't pick it up until the end of the day because we were not going to carry that thing around the entire day at Disneyland. So just as we were leaving, I had to run to Tomorrowland with my mother so that we could we could get this. And, and my heart was racing because I figured, my gosh, so many people will want this. There won't be any left. I won't be able to get that. And I, I got it and I carried it out of the park and I was sitting in the back seat of the car and I had it on my lap, and I couldn't open it. I was not allowed to open it until Christmas, and it's just sitting there on the lap. So from there, from Anaheim, driving back to uh, Glendale on the 5, I'm just looking at this, and and I didn't even want to shake the box because I was afraid I was going to break something in it. And on Christmas Day, I knew it was under the tree there, and 4 a.m. in the morning, Christmas Day, I was ripping into it. And I started drawing away. And and that's one of my most favorite Disneyland uh, memories because, um, you know, I, again, something with my family, but also this was something physical that connected me with Disney and that Disney magic. That's a great story. And we all have something like that. We all have a story or a memory like that. So, yeah, the 
those souvenirs are great. It's so it, it's kind of what draws you. To they come they back are. And, they're 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 a wonderful physical memory of the emotional experience that you had. That, that's why I liked it. Where there were specific souvenirs for Disneyland and specific souvenirs for Walt Disney World. This whole one Disney thing, where all of the merchandise is exactly the same, and then you could also pick it up at the Disney store if you want or whatever. You know, that just dulls the experience for me. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it looks like they're they're starting to go away from that a little bit. You know, you are starting mm-hmm. to see a little more. Well, well, more well they can they can stuff, see if but... if you have that merchandise for, you know, the fortieth of the Magic Kingdom or or whatever. You notice they'll only put out just a little merchandise, and it's gone by ten yeah. o'clock in the morning. You know, the T-shirts, the pins, the whole bit. People want those specific things. Yeah, they really do, and and. Hopefully they'll uh, they'll they'll keep going that direction, going back to where, to to the way they had it before. Well, thank you so much for having me on on uh, uh, Tiki Talk, and and I hope that the the listeners, if if they had fun, they'll go to Amazon.com and uh, take a look at some of my books, like uh, Vault of Walt or the Book of Mouse, which is literally the biography of uh, uh, Mickey Mouse, or Who's Afraid of the Song of the South, or um, uh, actually, there's a, a book called Animation Anecdotes, which uh, uh, tell all these behind-the-scenes stories and quotes from uh, uh, Disney animators. So uh, I know that you'll get enjoyment out of any of them. So uh, Jim Corcus, K-O-R-K-I-S, that's a Greek word that uh, used to mean horse slayer. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and uh, uh, thanks to Tiki Talk, and I hope you guys will have me back on again someday. We would love oh, to have you back on. We, Sean and I are already talking about what we're going to talk about next time we get you on the show. So, uh, we, <laughs> well, we really there, there's, a, there's a lot more to even uh, say about uh, Adventureland out here at Walt Disney World. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your night. That's going to do it for this week. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Loot Crate, the world's greatest subscription box for geeks, gamers, comic book, and Disney fans. For more information, visit their site at lootcrate.com slash tiki-talk. Be sure to let us know what you thought of the show. You can comment in the notes over at enchantedtiki-talk.com, email us at podcast at enchantedtiki-talk.com, or leave us a message on the Tiki Talk hotline, which is 256-4MY-TIKI. That's 256-469-8454. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Check out our store at redbubble.com and follow us on Twitter at Tiki Talk Podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please take the time to rate us on iTunes. And you can find me on Twitter at One Minute Disney Dream. That's one M I N Disney Dream and MouseWorldVacations.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dole Whip Daily. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Norman Bates. That's N O R M N B, the number eight and the letter S. Thanks for listening this week. For Sean and Keith and our special guest, Jim Corcus, I'm Alan, and this has been Enchanted Tiki Talk. Aloha. Hi, hey, Alan. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm old, fat, and broke. How are you? Uh, I'm fat and broke. Old, I guess it's relative. Depends on how who I'm comparing myself to.